Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Lore Explorer podcast, a podcast where we talk about the lore and history of various media, ranging from video games and movies to real-life figures and events. Today, we'll be focusing on Uncharted 2 Among Thieves. I will give a summary of the game for those who haven't played, though I would highly recommend playing through the game first for the best experience. I'm going to focus on the people, places, and events of the story, and see if there are any real-world connections. The information gathered for this episode comes from multiple sources, including the game's wiki. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to stick around to the end to hear about how you can support the show on Patreon. Without further ado, let's dive right in. with a quote attributed to Marco Polo. I did not tell half of what I saw, for I knew I would not be believed. The plot revolves around the doomed voyage home of Marco Polo from China in 1292. After spending almost 20 years in the court of the Mongol Emperor Kublai Khan, Marco Polo departed with 14 ships and over 600 passengers. But when he arrived in Persia a year and a half later, only one ship and 18 passengers remained. Polo never revealed what happened to the lost ships. Marco Polo was an Italian merchant, explorer, and writer who traveled throughout Asia along the Silk Road between 1271 and 1295. His travels are recorded in The Travels of Marco Polo, a book that described to Europeans then the mysterious culture and inner workings of the Eastern world, including the wealth and great size of the Mongol Empire and China and the Yuan Dynasty giving their first comprehensive look into China, India, Japan, and other Asian cities and countries. His father, Niccolo Polo, a merchant, traded with the Near East, becoming very wealthy and achieving great prestige. Niccolo and his brother Maffeo set off on a trading voyage before Marco's birth. In 1260, they both resided in Constantinople, then the capital of the Latin Empire and foresaw a political change. They liquidated their assets into jewels and moved away. According to the travels of Marco Polo, they passed through much of Asia and met with Kublai Khan, a Mongol ruler and founder of the Yuan dynasty. Their decision to leave Constantinople proved timely. In 1261, Michael VIII, the ruler of the Empire of Nicaea, took Constantinople, promptly burned the Venetian quarter and re-established the Eastern Roman Empire. Captured Venetian citizens were blinded, while many of those who managed to escape perished aboard overloaded refugee ships, fleeing to the other Venetian colonies in the Aegean Sea. Almost nothing is known about the childhood of Marco Polo until he was 15 years old, excepting that he probably spent part of his childhood in Venice. Meanwhile, Marco Polo's mother died, and an aunt and uncle raised him. 
he received a good education, learning mercantile subjects including foreign currency, appraising, and the handling of cargo ships. He learned little to no Latin. His father later married Floridais Polo. In 1269, Niccolo and Maffeo returned to their families in Venice, meeting young Marco for the first time. In 1271, during the rule of Lorenzo Topolo, Marco Polo, at 17 years of age, his father and his uncle set off for Asia on the series of adventures that Marco later documented in his book. They sailed to Acre and later rode on their camels to the Persian port Hormuz. During the first stages of the journey, they stayed for a few months in Acre and were able to speak with the archdeacon, Teodaldo Visconti of Piancia. The Polo family, on that occasion, had expressed their regret at the long lack of a pope, because on their previous trip to China, they had received a letter from Kublai Khan to the pope, and thus had to leave for China disappointed. During the trip, however, they received news that after 33 months of vacation, finally the conclave had elected the new pope. The three of them hurried to return to the Holy Land, where the new pope entrusted them with letters for the great Khan, inviting him to send his emissaries to Rome. They continued overland until they arrived at Kublai Khan's place in Shangdu, China. By this time, Marco was 21 years old. Impressed by Marco's intelligence and humility, Khan appointed him to serve as his foreign emissary to India and Burma. He was sent on many diplomatic missions throughout his empire, but also entertained the Khan with stories and observations about the lands he saw. As part of this appointment, Marco traveled extensively inside China, living in the emperor's lands for 17 years. Kublai Khan initially refused several times to let the Polos return to Europe, as he appreciated their company and they became useful to him. However, around 1291, he finally granted permission entrusting the Polos with his last duty, accompany the Mongol princess, who was to become the consort of Argun Khan in Persia. After leaving the princess, the Polos traveled overland to Constantinople. They later decided to return to their home. They returned to Venice in 1295, after 24 years with many riches and treasures. They had traveled almost 15,000 miles. Marco Polo returned to Venice in 1295 with his fortune converted into gemstones. At this time, Venice was at war with the Republic of Genoa. Polo armed a galley equipped with a trebuchet to join the war. He was probably caught by Genoans in a skirmish in 1296 off the Anatolian coast between Adana and the Gulf of Alexandretta. He spent several months of his imprisonment dictating a detailed account of his travels to a fellow inmate, Rusticello de Pisa, who incorporated tales of his own as well as other collected anecdotes and current affairs from China. The book soon spread throughout Europe in manuscript form and became known as the Travels of Marco Polo. Polo was finally released from captivity in August of 1299 and returned home to Venice, where his father and uncle in the meantime had purchased a large palazzo. For such a venture, the Polo family probably invested profits from trading and even many gemstones they brought from the east. The company continued its activities and Marco soon became a wealthy merchant. 
Marco and his uncle Maffeo financed other expeditions, but likely never left Venetian provinces, nor returned to the Silk Road and Asia. Sometime before 1300, his father Niccolo died. Though he was not the first European to reach China, Marco Polo was the first to leave a detailed chronicle of his experience. This book inspired Christopher Columbus and many other travelers. There is substantial literature based on Polo's writings, and he also influenced European cartography. The story of Uncharted 2 begins in media res, with a wounded Nathan Drake waking up to find himself in a train, hanging off of a cliff in a bloody stomach wound. Through flashbacks, it is revealed that former associate Harry Flynn and old girlfriend Chloe Fraser approached him with a job to steal a Mongolian oil lamp from an Istanbul museum. Nate accepts the job when he learns that the lamp may lead to the treasure of Marco Polo's lost fleet. Harry and Drake acquire the lamp, which contains a map, showing that the lost fleet had been transporting the Chintamani stone from the mythical city of Shambhala before being thrown ashore in Borneo by a tsunami. Taking the map, Flynn double-crosses Drake, who was arrested and imprisoned for three months. Chloe, who claims to have no knowledge of Flynn's treachery, asks for the help of Drake's friend Sully to secure his release. Chintamani is a wish-fulfilling jewel within both Hindu and Buddhist traditions, said by some to be the equivalent of the Philosopher's Stone in Western alchemy. It is one of several Mani Jewel images found in Buddhist scripture. In Buddhism, it is held by the Bodhisattvas, divine beings with great compassion, wisdom, and power. It is also seen carried upon the back of the Lung Ta, wind horse, which is depicted on Tibetan prayer flags. By reciting the Dharani, a small hymn, of Chintamani, Buddhist tradition maintains that one attains the wisdom of Buddha, able to understand the truth of the Buddha and turn afflictions into Bodhi. It is said to allow one to see the holy retinue of Amitabha, an assembly upon one's deathbed. In Tibetan Buddhism tradition, the Chintamani is sometimes depicted as a luminous pearl and is in the possession of several of different forms of the Buddha. Within Hinduism, it is connected with the gods Vishnu and Ganesha. In Hindu tradition, it is often depicted as a fabulous jewel in possession of the Naga king, or as on the forehead of the Makara. Nate and Sully follow Flynn and his boss Zoran Lazarevich, a Serbian war criminal who is widely thought to be dead, to Borneo. With the help of Chloe working within Lazarevich's camp as a mole, they discover that the lost fleet never actually possessed the Chintamani stone. They locate a tomb containing the bodies of Polo's passengers, as well as the Tibetan Purba, and a letter from Polo saying that the next clue is in Kathmandu, Nepal, in a temple. Flynn and his men appear in the tomb soon after and take the letter, while Nate and Sully escape. The kila, or purba, is a three-sided peg, stake, knife, or nail-like ritual implement traditionally associated with Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, bone, and Indian Vedic traditions. The fabrication of the kila is quite diverse, Having pommel, handle, and blade, kila are often segmented into suites of triunes on both the horizontal and vertical axes, though there are notable exceptions. This compositional arrangement highlights the numerological importance and spiritual energy of the integers 3 and 9. 
Kila may be constituted and constructed of different materials and material components, such as wood, metal, clay, bones, gems, horn, or crystal. Like the majority of traditional Tibetan metal instruments, the kila is often made from brass and iron. The blade is usually composed of three triangular facets or faces, meeting at the tip. These represent, respectively, the blade's power to transform the negative energies known as the three poisons, or root poisons, of attachment, craving, desire, delusion, ignorance, misconception, and aversion, fear, and hate. While Sully backs out, deciding that the quest is too risky, Nate and Chloe head to Nepal, finding conflict as Lazarevich's mercenary army ravages the city looking for the right temple. After surmising that the temple they are looking for is adorned with one of the symbols of the Purba, the couple survey the area from the rooftop of a local hotel, finding its location. En route to the temple, the pair runs into Elena Fisher and her cameraman Jeff, who are tracking down Lazarevich to prove he is still alive. Elena questions why Lazarevich is after the stone, considering he doesn't need the money. Nate and Chloe scour the temple and discover that the stone and Shambhala are in the Himalayas. Whilst leaving the temple, Nate and Chloe are ambushed. They reach the temple entrance to find Jeff has been shot in the crossfire. Despite Chloe's insistence to leave Jeff behind, Nate helps him push on until they are eventually caught. Chloe reluctantly pulls her gun on Nate to protect her cover, and upon entering the room, Lazarevich executes Jeff and takes Nate's map with directions to Shambhala. Flynn is instructed by Lazarevich to eliminate Nate and Elena, but the pair escape captivity. Elena questions Nate's motives for wanting to rescue Chloe, but ultimately decides to help Nate. Together they plan and catch up with Lazarevich's train on a stolen jeep. Nate boards the train, has to fight a group of soldiers, survive an attack from a helicopter, and fights Lieutenant Draza, who is in possession of the Purba dagger at this point. Drake eventually gets the dagger back after an intense fistfight. Draza regains consciousness and attempts to kill Drake, only to be killed by Chloe. But Chloe, who is upset about Nate having taken Elena and Jeff along earlier, refuses to leave with him. As the two argue, Flynn arrives and shoots Nate in the abdomen. Chloe then jumps in front of Flynn, giving Nate a chance to run. With Flynn distracted, soldiers pursue Drake until he is cornered. With no other option, Nate shoots a pile of propane tanks killing Flynn's men and sending Nate's half of the train over a steep cliff. Returning to where the game began, Nate escapes the train and travels through a snowstorm, recovering the purba among the wreckage before falling unconscious. He awakens in a Tibetan village, where he is reunited with Elena and is introduced to a German man named Carl Schaefer. Schaefer tells Nate that the purba is the key to finding Shambhala, but Nate tells him he is no longer interested. To convince him otherwise, Schaefer sends Nate and the village leader Tenzin to find the remains of the men in his expedition, who were looking for Shambhala and the stones 70 years earlier. Traveling through a series of caves to an ancient temple filled with yeti-like creatures, Nate and Tenzin discover that Schaefer's men were SS members on an Ananerbe expedition, and that he had killed them to protect the world from the power of the stone. The Ananerbe was a German organization set up as a branch of the SS under Heinrich Himmler. Its main purpose was to track down the roots of the quote-unquote Aryan race, and they sought artifacts and culture all over the world. 
They return to find Lazarevich's men attacking the village. Tenzin and Nate go to fight for the village, facing a tank in the process. After securing the village, Nate and Elena find out that Schaefer has been kidnapped, along with the Purba Dagger. Then they track and fight Lazarevich's convoy to an abandoned monastery, getting blown off the edge of a cliff in the attempt, but they eventually gain entrance via the mountains and infiltrate it. The couple locate a mortally wounded Schaefer, who tells Nate he must destroy the Chintamani Stone. Schaefer then succumbs to his wounds and dies. Nate then tells Elena that he is going to continue his search. Elena then says she and Nate should split up to find the secret entrance to Shambhala faster. Eventually, Nate locates Chloe, who surrenders the Purba after he promises to take Lazarevich down. Nate and Elena reunite and beat Lazarevich, using the Purba to unlock the secret passage to Shambhala underneath the monastery. But Lazarevich corners them, and forces Nate to choose out of Elena or Chloe. Nate agrees to his demands and is forced to go with Flynn to open the gate. When the gate opens, the group is attacked by the monsters from the ice caves, but Lazarevich manages to kill them. It is then revealed that they are actually the human guardians of Shambhala, powered by the Nchitamani stone and dressed like monsters to scare off anyone who trespasses into the city. Just as Lazarevich prepares to kill Elena and Nate, Chloe protected by Flynn, another wave of guardians attacks which allows them and Chloe to escape. Making their way to the top of the central temple, Nate discovers that the Chintamani stone is in fact a giant amber of petrified blue resin embedded in a giant prehistoric tree of life. The true worth of Shambhala is the blue sap of the tree, which when ingested makes the drinker nearly invincible. The tree of life is a fundamental widespread myth or archetype in many of the world's mythologies, religious, and philosophical traditions. It is closely related to the concept of the sacred tree. The tree of knowledge, connecting to heaven and the underworld, and the tree of life, connecting all forms of creation, are both forms of the world tree, or cosmic tree, and are portrayed in various religions and philosophies as the same tree. The bow tree, also called Bodhi tree, according to Buddhist tradition, is the pipal tree, under which the Buddha sat when he attained enlightenment. In Christianity, the tree of life first appears in Genesis 2.9 and 3.22-24 as the source of eternal life in the Garden of Eden, from which access is revoked when man is driven from the garden. It then reappears in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and most predominantly in the last chapter of that book, chapter 22, as a part of the new garden of paradise. Access is then no longer forbidden, for those who wash their robes have right to the tree of life. A similar statement appears in Revelations 2.7, where the tree of life is promised as a reward to those who overcome. Revelation 22 begins with a reference to the pure river of water of life, which proceeds out of the throne of God. The river seems to feed two trees of life, one on either side of the river, which bear twelve manner of fruits, and the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. Pope Benedict XVI has said that the cross is the true tree of life. 
Saint Bonaventure taught that the medicinal fruit of the tree of life is Christ himself. Saint Albert the Great taught that the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, is the fruit of the tree of life. Augustine of Hippo said that the tree of life is Christ himself. All these things stood for something other than what they were, but all the same they were themselves bodily realities. And when the narrator mentioned them, he was not employing figurative language, but giving an explicit account of things which had a forward reference that was figurative. So then the tree of life also was Christ, and indeed God did not wish the man to live in the paradise without the mysteries of spiritual things being presented to him in bodily form. So then in the other trees he was provided with nourishment, and this one with a sacrament. He has rightly called whatever came before him in order to signify him. In Eastern Christianity, the tree of life is the love of God. The tree of life appears in Norse religion as Yggdrasil, the world tree, a massive tree with extensive lore surrounding it. It is an immense mythical tree that plays a central role in Norse cosmology, where it connects the nine realms. Perhaps related to Yggdrasil, accounts have survived of Germanic tribes honoring sacred trees within their societies. Examples include Thor's oak, sacred groves, the sacred tree of Uppsala, and the wooden Irminsul pillar. In Norse mythology, the apples from Ayun's ash box provide immortality for the gods. For the Islamic faith, the tree of immortality is the tree of life motif as it appears in the Quran. Unlike the biblical account, the Quran mentions only one tree in Eden, also called the tree of immortality, and ownerships which decays not, which Allah specifically forbade to Adam and Eve. The tree in Quran is used as an example for a concept, idea, way of life, or code of life. A good concept idea is represented as a good tree, and a bad idea concept is represented as a bad tree. The concept of world trees is a prevalent motif in pre-Columbian Mesoamerican cosmologies and iconography. World trees embody the four cardinal directions, which represented also the fourfold nature of a central world tree, a symbolic axis mundi connecting the planes of the underworld and the sky with that of the terrestrial world. Depictions of world trees both in their directional and central aspects are found in the art and mythological traditions of cultures such as the Mayan, Aztec, Izapan, Miztec, Olmec, and others, dating to at least the mid-late formative periods of Mesoamerican chronology. In a myth passed down among the Iroquois, the world on the turtle's back explains the origin of the land in which a tree of life is described. According to the myth, it is found in the heavens, where the first humans lived, until a pregnant woman fell and landed in an endless sea. Saved by a giant turtle from drowning, she formed the world on its back by planting bark taken from this tree. Focusing back on the game, as they prepare to go after Lazarevich, a wounded Flynn arrives and detonates a grenade, killing himself and seriously wounding Elena. Nate leaves Elena in Chloe's care and sets off to confront Lazarevich at the tree. Nate arrives just as Lazarevich drinks the tree's sap, 
which renders him nearly indestructible and heals his old wounds and scars. Detonating the pockets of explosive resin in the tree, Nate defeats Lazarevich and leaves him to be brutally beaten and killed by the Guardians. Nate reunites with Chloe and Elena and they escape the city as a series of explosions begins to destroy Shambhala. Nate sets Elena down when they get out of Shangri-La, but the signs don't look promising. Nate begs Elena not to leave him as it fades out. Back in the village, Chloe asks Nate if he loves Elena, which he does not deny. Chloe bids Nate goodbye as Sully leads a recovering Elena over to him. When Sully chases after Chloe, Elena and Nate pay their respects at Schaefer's grave before embracing. They share a kiss, and together as they walk over to the edge of a cliff and watch the sun set behind the mountains. Well, that pretty much wraps up everything on Uncharted 2 Among Thieves. I would like to thank my patrons. Linda for the support at the Expert Explorer level, Tim and Lindsay for their support at the Intermediate Explorer level, and Jackie for her support at the Novice Explorer level. If you have enjoyed the episode or have any suggestions, be sure to leave a review. And don't forget to go over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash explorer to support the show today. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys in the next one.